The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Uh, I'd like for you all to take your Bibles and open them to Job chapter 2. Job chapter 2. So we're going to stand together, and I'm going to read from Job chapter 2, and I'm going to read the first ten verses of Job chapter 2. So if you would read along silently with me as I read out loud. Job chapter 2. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said unto Satan, From whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? And still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath he will give for his life. But put forth thine hand now, and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. So went Satan forth from the presence of the Lord, and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. And he took him a potsherd to scrape himself withal, and he sat down among the ashes. Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this did Job not sin with his lips. Let's pray. Lord, as I stand in this office today, I, I realize that I'm very unworthy and very incompetent. But thankfully, Lord, today we preach from a perfect word, a word without error, a word without fault. So, Lord, we'll stay in your word today and we'll preach your word only. And then we'll know that we have glorified you in all that we do. Thank you, Lord, for all that are here today. Touch our hearts and minds. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If I were to give everyone here a piece of paper today, a sheet of paper, and I would ask you to give me your definition of blessings, I wonder what would be written on that, on that paper. I imagine a, 
an entire gamut of things would be mentioned. Noah Webster defines blessing as any means of happiness or as a gift, benefit, or advantage. He further defines it as that which promotes temporal prosperity and welfare or secures immortal felicity. We live in a world today with a a generation of people who live by a philosophy known as entitlement. They think they're entitled to everything. And our workforce in America is suffering greatly for that. People think that, well, I'm entitled to this, or I'm entitled to that. I deserve it. I should have it. And further, unfortunately, many of our pulpits today are taking that same line. Preaching this prosperity gospels and and, and things such as that. But what if I were to tell you today that a blessing can be disguised? Now, I don't, I don't want to offend anyone. It's, it's, it's interesting because this morning already there have been, in our singing and, 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 and in our praying, there have already been mentions of blessings. But they always seem to surround Good things happening. And I think to the average mind in here, we would think that a blessing is something good. Not something evil, not something uh, bad, but good. A blessing is good. That would be the general thought of, of most here, if not all here today. But suppose I was to tell you this morning that blessings will not always make you happy. Suppose I was to tell you that blessings will not always make you successful or prosperous, but that they may be painful or burdensome, maybe even fatal. Our unconscious association of blessings, including spiritual blessings, with prosperity stems from corrupt theology, such as permeates our society today. It is a theology that places, now listen closely, it's a theology that places the happiness and prosperity of man at the pinnacle of everything in life. It's all about me. It's all about how happy am I? How successful am I? How prosperous am I? This man-centered theology implies that everything God does is for me, for my pleasure, and for my benefit. You don't have to listen to Joel Olstein very long to understand that's what he's preaching. That God is doing things, everything God does is for me, for my pleasure, 
and for my benefit. It is theology that says, I am the most important thing in the universe, and God sits in heaven waiting upon me, poised to spring into action at my beck and call. And that's what we see permeating our churches today. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, Paul writes to Timothy and says, Perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. Then Paul says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. But just suppose God isn't doing all those things for me, for my pleasure, or for my benefit. Just suppose for a moment that everything God does is for his pleasure, not for mine, for his benefit, not for mine, and for his glory, and not for mine. Suppose that God has a different agenda than I have. And that his is sovereign. And supreme in all things. Suppose that everything I receive from God is designed to glorify him. And not me. Just suppose this for a little while. Just humor me for a little while this morning. We read from Job chapter 2. Now in Job chapter 1, the, the, the front story, Satan came to God and challenged Job's fidelity to God. And so God told Satan that he could take everything Job had. So, so Satan took all of Job's property, all of his wealth, all of his servants... Even, even slew his children. And yet Job did not curse God. And now in chapter 2, we see that he's come back to God and he said, Oh yeah, well you, you took away everything he, he has except his own health. Let me have that and let's see how long he's faithful to you. So God told Job, oh, Satan, go ahead, take his health, but you can't take his life. And so now we see Job. If you and I could go back to that scene today, if we could look Job in the eyes and ask him at that very moment if he felt blessed, I wonder what his response would be. You ever thought about that? To look at a man who is in the, at the bottom of life, to look him right in the eyes and say, do you feel blessed at this moment? Well, Fortunately, we can do that. Look at Job chapter 2 again with me and look at verse 9. Then, then said his wife unto him. She's looking him right in the eyes. And she says, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this did not Job sin with his lips. So we see Job's response. 
From this scripture, we can infer that Job interpreted the present trial he faced as coming from the Lord. If you notice carefully in verse 10, Job acknowledged this evil which he presently found himself in in the same association as the good he receives at the hand of God. So we are to assume that it was God himself who poured out this evil upon Job. James chapter 1 and verse 13, it reads, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. No, no, Job is not facing this from the hand of God. That's not what he's saying here. But what he's saying is, the good and the evil that he receives in life are no different. He receives them because it is the will of God. We know from Scripture that it was not God that brought this evil upon Job. It was Satan. However, it is equally important to note that God did allow this to befall Job. He allowed Satan to afflict Job. But why? Why would God allow all of this suffering upon one of his children? Was it so that God could see Was it to prove to God that Job really loved him and really honored him? No. Job chapter 12 and verse 3. But thou, O Lord, knowest me. Thou hast seen me and tried mine heart toward thee. God knows and he knew Job's love for him. God knows every step that we take. He knows every thought that we have. Psalm 37 and verse 23, Scripture states, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. No, this was not a test to prove Job's loyalty to God. It could be that God allowed this to befall Job to prove his own power to Satan and to Job. It could be to glorify the name of God. That name which Satan was attempting to slander. Again in Job chapter 1 and verse 9. Then Satan answered the Lord and said. Doth Job fear God for naught? Now. One might be tempted to say here. That God allowed Job to go through all of this. Because God knew that Job could endure it. But this too. Is the wrong assumption. In fact, that line of theology falls in line with those who, who, who deny God's sovereign grace and say that the elect are those who God foresaw, foresaw would trust him. And that's not true. God didn't just simply foresee our faith. He willed our faith. No, Job could not endure anything without the grace of God and the mercy of God. Neither could you or me. Before we sit too, too, too comfortably in our chairs and pat ourselves on the back for, for obeying and serving the Lord, you better stop and realize you are nothing. 
Oh, you don't agree with that statement? That's the problem. The problem is you are filthy, sinless flesh. And that's all you ever be apart from the grace and mercy of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 10, Paul writes, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. God did not simply know that Job would endure. God willed that Job would endure. And God empowered Job to endure. Ephesians 2.10 For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Blessings do not always come wrapped in foil paper and colorful bows. Sometimes they are wrapped in plain brown paper. Sometimes they are not very attractive at all. But blessings they are nonetheless. You see, Job's friends all came to him trying to, trying to determine what evil lurked in Job to bring such a curse upon him. Huh? They did not see this as a blessing from God. <laughs> they interpreted it as a curse. And the same is true with us today. <laughs> What's normally our first reaction when we see someone falling into sin? Well, that's, yeah, there you go. They're getting what they deserved. Or, or some Christian has a flat tire and they get out of their car and say, Why are you punishing me, God? I saw a little, a little thing once where a man had a flat tire. And he was all upset. He was taking his son to a ball game and he had a flat tire. And he got all upset because he missed the game. And as he drove down the road, just a little ways, there was a horrible, horrible accident in which many people died. And he came to realize that that flat tire possibly saved his life. See, we don't always see blessings the way God does. When we see people facing trials, we, we tend to wonder what they have done to bring this judgment upon themselves. But maybe, just maybe, it's a blessing from God. Not a curse. For in the end, we know that Job was vindicated by God. Amen? He received double of all that he lost during this trial. In Job 42, verses 12 and 13, we read, So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning. For he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yokes of oxen and 1,000 she-asses. He had also seven sons and three daughters. We need to understand today that everything that we receive, good or evil, is a blessing from God. People ask me often, they, co-workers will come to me, they all know that 
that I, I have faith in God and that I serve in the church. And they come to me and they say, how can a God of, of love allow women, mothers and children to die in car accidents and things such as that? And I tell them the same thing. God didn't do that. Sin did that. Don't blame God. Blame man. Blame sin. Because this earth is under a curse because of sin. And but by the grace of God, there would be no mercy on any of us. When we face trials, don't look at them as evil. Look at them as blessings. Look for the blessings in God, from God, in the midst of the storm. So I want to give you three thoughts concerning facing trials and then we'll be done. Now that doesn't mean we're going to be done soon. Okay, sorry. I wish. Okay, number one. When you face trials... Praise the name of God. Just praise God. What did Job say in his trials? The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Remember, Satan's goal in, his, in the affliction of Job was to get him to curse God's name. And we saw earlier in Job 2.9... That even Job's wife pressured him to do this. Uh, then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain that integrity? Curse God and die. In the midst of life's problems, we will always face pressure to blame God. We will be pressured from within, our own flesh. We will be pressured from without, our acquaintances. And we, we will be pressured from below, the spirit of the Antichrist. We will be tempted to find some blame or some fault as to why we face this dilemma. But maybe, just maybe, there is no blame at all. Maybe there's no fault. Maybe, just maybe, it is a blessing from God. And this is what Job understood. In Job 13, verse 15, Job says, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Now, our society always looks for someone or something to blame. Psychologists are always labeling us as victims. It is not your fault, they'll tell people. It's your environment, the environment you grew up in. It's your parents. It's the way your parents treated you. It's your siblings. It's, It's your boss. It's your neighbor. It's your car. Your shoes are too tight. It's always an excuse. It's always a reason. But you might ask, how can I praise the name of God in the midst of great trouble and grief? You know, I'm glad you asked me that question. Thank you for that. You see, we can praise the name of God among storms because we know that he is greater than any problem we face. In 1 John 4, 4, ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We can praise the name of God in the midst of our storms because we know that he is sovereign and that all things are under his control. In Colossians chapter 1, 
verses 16 and 17, we read, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Let us take our admonition from David the psalmist. In Psalms 139, verse 14, we read, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. Yes, when troubles arise, praise the name of God. Praise him in the good times. That's easy, right? It's easy to praise God when things are going well. Praise the Lord, I got a pay raise. Praise the Lord, I paid off my mortgage. Yeah, it's easy to praise him in the good times. What about the difficult times? What about the hard times? Do we praise him then? Job one twenty one, And said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's the right attitude about trials. Job understood it as a blessing. It didn't look like one, but it was one. And he understood that, and he praised God for it. Listen, be careful about demanding from God what we deserve. Be careful. Remember, the only thing we deserve is eternal damnation. God owes us nothing. And is not obligated to us in any way. It is by his great grace and mercy that we are not consumed before his eyes. So in the midst of troubles, praise the name of God. Then secondly, when trials come, pray for the will of God. Pray for the will of God. Luke chapter 11 and verse 2. And he said unto them, when ye pray, say, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done as in heaven, so in earth. Pray for the will of God. Can I share something personally with you for a moment? December 26, 1986, my son was born. I was, so, I was so thrilled because I wanted a boy so bad. I, I forbade any of my family members for my first two daughters. I forbade any of them to give us anything pink. If they gave me something pink, I would not accept it. Because I knew it was going to be a boy. And one of the cruelest tricks ever played when my second daughter was born, Janet, the nurse brought her out to me in the waiting room, which is where father's are supposed to be, in the waiting room. And they brought her out to me in a blue blanket. And I said, it's a boy! She said, no, Mr. Epsha, I'm sorry. We were out of pink blankets. (laughs) Cruel. Cruel. I said, why didn't you wrap her in a white blanket? 
But when Dalton was born, I was ecstatic. My mother was there with me, and we were rejoicing, and we were hugging, and we were so thankful. And then the doctor came out and sat down next to me and said, Dalton, listen, there's a problem. We don't know what it is. He may not make it. I went from the height of ecstasy to the depth of sorrow. And I went and I found a little chapel in that hospital. And I knelt down there. And this is what I prayed. God, give me strength to handle your will. I prayed, Lord, your will be done in this. Just give me the strength to accept it. You see, when trouble comes, we just need to pray for the will of God. Because it's going to happen either way. Amen? God's will shall be done. Nothing on earth shall prevent God's will. But I didn't want that to cause me to become bitter and angry and hateful and reject God. I understood that God had a will and a purpose in this. And I, but I, needed to un, I didn't need to understand it. I just need the strength to accept it. Do you know you're not always going to understand God's will? Do you realize that? You won't always understand why things are happening. And by the way, God doesn't owe you an explanation as to why it's happening. You just need to know it's God's will. And it's what's best for all. And just pray that God will help you to accept it. Now, there are some very important things about the will of God I need to mention. First of all, God's will is good. It's always good. There's nothing better for me than God's will. Who knows what's better for me than God? This philosophy is readily accepted when we speak of mechanical things. The designer knows best how to operate the equipment. Why? Because he designed it. He understands its purpose and limitations. Well, isn't the same thing true with the believer? Who better understands man, his purpose, and his limitations? Who more than God? Then we, would, we, should, we should trust God. Not our own depraved mind, not our own depraved heart, but God. In Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Just trust God. I've had people come up to me uh, over the years and said, Well, you know, I'm accepting God's will, but he's going to owe me an explanation when I get to heaven. No, he doesn't. And you better be careful. God doesn't owe you anything. In fact, you owe him everything. And don't ever forget that. If you learn nothing else before you leave here today, learn that God owes you nothing and you owe him everything. But then next, God's will is acceptable. God's will is always acceptable. It does not matter if God's will is acceptable to me or not. It is God's will. Therefore, it is authoritative. But nonetheless, it is acceptable. 
Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Reasonable service. This best explains the acceptable will of God. God has not and will not ask you to do anything unreasonable. Anything, listen, if Jesus went to the cross of Calvary and suffered and died for you and and, and paid your sin debt in full, then is anything he can ask of you unreasonable? I should hope not. Someone, if someone saves your very life, you owe him everything. And anything he would ask would not be, un, would not be unreasonable. Ah, the skeptic will say, now I got you. Was it reasonable for God to ask Abraham to sacrifice Isaac? Was it reasonable for God to ask a father to murder his own son? My answer is yes. It was reasonable because God gave Isaac to Abraham to begin with. It was acceptable to Abraham because he understood and believed that God would honor his promise. God promised Abraham that a great nation would come forth from his loins. And Abraham trusted and believed God. And so he knew that God was, was going to keep his promise. So this was not an unacceptable or an unreasonable request. And while we cannot always see the end of the road that God has called us to travel, we know and understand that wherever, whatever we may face along this path is ordained of God and will be in accordance with his will and is therefore acceptable unto us. Romans 8.28 And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Now wait a minute. Do you see it says work together for good? You see that up there? What you consider good and what God considered good is two different things. This isn't saying all things work together for your good. What it's saying is that all things work together according to God's good and God's will. And then God's will is perfect. In my office, right over, over here, I have a small gift given to me. It's a little sailing ship given to me by a very good friend who now lives in Washington State. Inscribed on the sail of that little boat, and you're welcome to come to my office and see it anytime you'd like, this is what it says. The will of God will never take you where the grace of God cannot keep you. I love that. You see, that gives me confidence and courage to know that whatever I face, God is there. And whatever happens, it's his will. And it's going to happen exactly as he desires. So how can I ever say the will of God is not good? Just because I don't understand it doesn't make it bad. It says all things so perfectly. 
We need not ever fear obeying God's will, for God would never send us where he cannot and has already provided the means to keep us. Doesn't mean we won't die, but we won't be lost in hell for all eternity. We'll be with him on the streets of gold. Everything, even in things, even if things end in a way that may not seem good to us, if it's God's will, then it is perfect. God's will is always perfect in his purpose and in his timing. Therefore, knowing these truths concerning God's will for me in the midst of the storm, let us pray for the will of God. Then, number three today, when we face trials, purpose to glorify God. Purpose in your heart to glorify God. Determine that you're going to glorify God through this trouble, through this trial. Matthew 5.16 Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Now this is where the rubber meets the road. Whose will is important? Mine or God's? And if it is God's will that is important, why would you resist it? And why would you try to manipulate the circumstances to change it? Jesus admonishes us to live our life in such a manner that those around us will be compelled to glorify God. Now, this is hard enough to do when things are going well. It's hard enough to live that way when, when your bank account's full, when your mortgage is paid, and when your kids are all healthy, and your grandkids are all healthy, and everything is all great in your life. It's hard enough to live your life in such a way to glorify God in those times, even more so in the midst of storms and troubles. But this is what we're admonished to do. All that I do should be with the purpose to glorify God. When I speak, it should be such that glorifies God. Colossians 4, 6. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. And by the way, you don't always have to give an answer. Sometimes you're better off just closing your mouth and saying nothing at all. When I, but when I speak, it should be such that glorifies God. When I labor, it should glorify God. Colossians 3.23, whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. Whatsoever I do, it should be with a meek spirit and in submission to God and his sovereignty over me. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31 whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. How we respond to the circumstances we face will either glorify God or will bring a reproach to his name. We must, in the midst of trials, purpose to glorify God. And a great example of this was Daniel. Daniel chapter 1 and verse 8. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. We know the circumstances in Daniel's life. He was, 
He was taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar's army and taken away to, to, to Babylon. Probably saw his parents murdered, taken from his home. But even through all of that, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself, that he would not dishonor God. He purposed to glorify God. And the end result was that Daniel had a major impact upon the kings under which he served. The same was true for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The same was true for Joseph, just to name a few. These men all purposed to glorify God with their lives, even in the midst of the great suffering they faced. And in the end, the victory was theirs. As it will be ours. Now, they didn't, they didn't ultimately die. But even if they did, you know, even if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego perished in the fire, their, their, their behavior still would have glorified God. Therefore, it was a blessing. Because they were given the great honor of glorifying the name of their God. Philippians 1.20, Paul writes, According to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. Paul's desire was to glorify God, whether it was by living or by dying. Blessings are not always manifested in happy Pleasant things. Sometimes they're disguised. Sometimes they come to you in the midst of a great trial. Blessings in disguise. They're there. They are there. But you will have to look for them. This morning I pray the Holy Spirit has spoken to you concerning something in our lives. If you're not saved today. I pray that you will hear the voice of Christ calling you to repentance. Romans chapter 10. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. And shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. If you're not saved this morning. Turn to God. And be saved. If you're going through a storm today, I pray the Holy Spirit will strengthen you and help you see the blessings in that storm. If you have just recently come through a storm and you are left bitter and angry with God and his people, I pray the Holy Spirit will soften your cold, hard heart. And for the rest of you, those who have not been through a great storm, or are not going through a storm right now, I pray the Holy Spirit will teach you these things, that when the time comes, and it will come, you will be ready to face the storms and find the blessings that are hidden there. Let's pray. Father, thank you. I thank you for your word. And that's what we preach today, Lord. We preached your word. And we know that you are faithful to us. And we know, Lord, that we 
have no need of fear or worry. We know that all things happen according to your will and we know that your will is always best. And Lord, uh, help us not to cling to this, to this earth. Help us not to cling to this life. So much so that we would forsake your will in an effort, a vain effort, to remain in this place. But help us, Lord. Help us to desire your will above all things. Even our own life. Thank you for all that are here today. I pray this message would have been received in the spirit it was given. And I just ask you, Lord, to bless us all. For we need your blessings. Whether, whether they appear to us as good or evil. We need your blessings today. Thank you, Lord, for this time now. We ask you bless in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.